want to welcome you all to our program today, and thank you for joining us. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor um, and director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, University of Minnesota. Thrilled with today's program, um, we have someone I consider to be an icon in the study of American politics and political communications, um, who has thought long and hard and done quite a bit of research on facts, which is a real issue today. One of the things about our presenter today, Kathleen Hall Jameson, is that her commentary stands out for me as being pointed, meaning big points, few words, which I appreciate. She's also original and very helpful as we're all gonna see today. She was born in Minneapolis. She was the creator and uh, still very active at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania. She has over 100 publications um, and has won a number of awards and recognitions for many of these. She has also won teaching awards at all the universities she's taught at, which is absolutely remarkable that someone is as accomplished and active as Professor Jameson um, would be such a star in the classroom. She's founded factcheck.org, which I think a number of us rely upon. And she is someone who is a frequent commentator. Kathleen Hall Jameson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and, and, you know, I always look forward to seeing you, Larry, because usually it means I've gotten to go home to Minnesota. So I'm, I'm looking at your backdrop and saying, I, I don't really believe those trees are blooming and the grass is green. I, I bet you've got snow. And what's remarkable is I'm sitting in Philadelphia and we do too. Uh, so apart from those poor people in Texas right now, uh, we are seeing what we could reasonably categorize as extreme weather. And by extreme, that means everybody else in the country is experiencing what is normal for Minnesota. <laughs> well, of course, you've had a lot of experience with Minnesota weather. Um, I want to start off with um, a series of comments and, and articles you've been writing and giving after the election about whether American democracy is resilient. Of course, there are many people who think it's on a decline or is, or is close to, to dead. Um, could you explain a little bit what you mean by American democracy being resilient? Well, first, let me set up a premise, which is the if we're going to stay mobilized to protect something, you can't start from the premise that it's hopeless. So you've got to start by saying, I'm going to look at the places that are working and working well, asking why they're working well and how to increase the likelihood that they are protected. I mean, the worst scenario would be we just give up and then parts of our system that are working well fall into decline. So how do, why do, what, what do I, I mean by resilient? I mean that when we faced a genuine crisis um, and there were challenges to what we knew about the outcome of the election, our courts did their job. So the people who believed that there was extensive fraud had the opportunity to go into a system in which the discourse norms are clear. There is such a thing as evidence. There is such a thing as proof. There are standards of what constitutes proof. And we've always worried because the nature of the rhetoric recently <clears throat> has been to say judges are just partisans. So it's just another effect, effectively another elected branch. They just pretend they're nonpartisan. Well, we had a chance to test that. And what we saw was that the party of the 
individual did not predict the judicial outcome. The party that nominated the individual in case where you've got judges that were nominated through a process or recommended through a process did not predict the outcome. And that the outcome across the courts was highly consistent. Confronted with the same kinds of evidence, the standards of evidence and standards of proof worked. And so you saw Republican nominated and democratically nominated. You saw Trump nominated and non-Trump nominated judges coming to the same sets of conclusions. What that says is we are still capable of reaching reasoned judgments based on evidence and a standard of proof. And it means one of our branches is solid. So what do I mean by resilient? Ultimately, the outcome was protected. Ultimately, there still is a place in which discourse norms that we traditionally have hoped would characterize all of our branches were being honored. Second argument for resilience is the Senate did the right thing. When those senators walked back in after their lives had been at risk and did their job, that was a sign, but Republican or Democrat, ultimately the system worked. So I start with my premise, which is I'm gonna look for places that things are working, I'm gonna celebrate them, and then we can ask where they're not working, what can we do there? But I don't wanna say as my premise, it's so broken that we shouldn't celebrate it and say that it is ultimately resilient because if we say if it isn't, maybe we won't let it be, we won't protect it. Coming out of January, there was a sentiment among you know, some number of Americans and commentators that um, nothing had fundamentally changed. We'd had this hideous event of uh, January 6th in which uh, Congress was invaded. We had you know, misinformation about the outcome of the election uh, despite everything you've said, but Donald Trump was acquitted. He remains influential. Um, Republicans in Congress voted um, uh, for impeachment, were then censured, and now look like they will be possibly thrown out of uh, their seat going into the next set of elections. There's every chance that we'll see you know, a rerun of the charges of election fraud where Republicans lose. And then you've got these polls reporting that 75% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden uh, actually did not win. That looks pretty, pretty formidable in terms of the damage done to, the, to our democracy and why so many people are worried about it. It's worrisome that the outcome of the election having been adjudicated is still contested. So on the, the negative side of my balance sheet, I'm not concerned that Donald Trump and his supporters went to the courts. They're entitled to go to the courts. I'm not concerned that they continued to pursue that avenue to the very end. They were entitled to do that. At the point at which that process has, go, has been gone through, you have had recounts, you've had efforts to find out whether their claim was accurate or not. And people persist in believing that there was massive fraud. Now we have a problem. And the question is, how do we break out of those echo chambers in which people are only hearing reinforcing information for one point of view to increase the likelihood of that and increase the disposition to be able to step back and say, so for you, what would constitute evidence then? And for you, if your candidate were the winning candidate and someone were making those claims, what would constitute evidence that you would offer to others since you've now discredited our means of ascertaining evidence as a system. 
And I think instead of assuming that everyone who holds that view is a problematic individual who is unredeemable, one would instead ask, what would lead you to think that? And then ask, what do we know about communication systems? And we know that if you're inside a like-minded communication system and you are only exposed to it or dominantly exposed to it, and it is constantly reinforced that across time, the likelihood, simply the familiarity with the argument is gonna increase the perceived accuracy of it. So how do we increase the exposure to, and then respect for those processes that do actually certify? And I think it's a challenge for academics. I think it's a challenge for people who are in governance. And I think it's, it's something that we, we need to think about as we're going forward with, with really great care. I mean, Rush Limbaugh just died. Um, we spent a lot of time studying conservative talk radio. I wrote a book with Joe Capello called Echo Chamber that first looked at the implications of some people inside a conservative community enclaving. So they were getting more of their information only from one side of the aisle. And you know, the, that tendency has become substantially more deeply rooted now that we have social media and substantially more difficult to break because of the algorithmic patterns by which you're continuing to be fed like-minded information that is progressively more extreme inside social media. So what is a solution? try to get the platforms to stop that kind of spiraling of reinforcing information to try to push more eyeballs to advertisers and in the process, increase the extremity of the discourse. Do you think the lawsuits by some of the election vendors is one strategy for kind of bringing a bit of this reality that you've been talking about? The, again, let's turn back to what's the value of having the court system preserved? At the point at which the lawsuits are placed in the hands of the media outlets that had said that Dominion, for example, I mean, go through the list, had engaged in activities that the evidence suggested were just simply, they simply implausible claims. Um, at what point did those outlets that were trafficking in the claims decide that they would back off those claims at the point at which they had to go into court and defend the accuracy of the positions that were taken on air? On, and on cable. So you know, what, what is our protection in this system? We still do have some place in which confronted with the need to establish a case that you cannot establish, people will back off because litigation potentially carries real penalties. So I view that as a reality moment. By the way, we, do, we can step out of an electoral environment in order to discuss it. Uh, so the, the problem we get at the election is if, if, you, if you wanted Donald Trump to be president and you really thought that was good for the country, um, and maybe you liked court, his court appointments. Maybe you liked his deregulation. You, you really wanted Donald Trump. When we talk about this just in terms of Biden-Trump, we can't step back far enough to see that this is a problem that, that pervades other parts of our lives. So at what point have we seen individuals who are trafficking in other kinds of narratives back off at the point at which they were threatened with litigation? So when the owner of Comet Pizza in Washington, D.C., you know, suggests that he might be engaged in litigation against InfoWars' Alex Jones about the Pizzagate claims that led an individual, Madison Welsh, to go to Comp Pizza with guns in, in order to rescue children who were supposedly being abused in a basement that didn't even exist by Democrats. Um, when does Alex Jones back off at the threat of, of litigation? So the we have a protection inside our system at this point in which you're actually able to see 
when people are trafficking and that kind of misinformation, and then people accept it. I mean, Welsh went to jail. I believe he was just released. At what point do you get some kind of accountability? You get at the point at which you get it back into the discourse norms of a court system where evidence has meaning. You can interrogate it carefully. You can always put up counter evidence in that structure, but there's standards of proof. And so we've seen outside this election, moments in which people who are trafficking in that kind of information back off quickly at the point at which they're going to be legally liable. Um, you've talked about the resilience of American institutions and yet we saw that Donald Trump was acquitted. He's able to run again. Uh, looks like he's making every effort possible to be a player in the upcoming elections. Is that a sign of resilience that he got off scot-free? You want to adopt a resilience frame and lay it on top of everything. I want to reframe that to say, I'm going to look to places that are resilient and then ask what we can do in, to, in order to ensure that we protect a kind of discourse norm that lets people contest about things that are contestable, but ultimately land on some common knowledge that we can govern from. And so I'm gonna reframe your question to say, how much of Donald Trump have you heard recently? What happened when he was deplatformed and as a result, couldn't constantly intrude on the media narrative? Did the fact of deplatforming change the dialogue in some way? And now we will ask the question, under what circumstances should someone be deplatformed? It's a separate question. I, I really get nervous about taking speech down. I, yeah, I, let's, I want to come to that issue because I know you've written a lot about that. Before we do, I want to just come to this CNN poll because I know you've thought hard about where Americans are, um, are, are kind of positioning themselves on the election. Um, and the CNN poll said that there were 75% of Republicans who did not believe that Joe Biden um, won the election. And when you kind of think about our society, is that actually true or is, there, is that a more complex story? Well, first, you're, you're the polling expert. I am not. I do not believe polling data that divides people into Republicans, Democrats, and talks about Donald Trump. And part of the reason that I don't, first, it may be underestimating for all I know, maybe overestimating for all I know, but the, the difficulty right now in getting an accurate measure on, on Republicans and Democrats when whole blocks of people don't wanna be surveyed at all. Um, and you know, some people just will tell you anything off the top of their head is, is, is for me problematic. I'm, I'm worrying a lot about what we can know through surveys. Um, and when surveys tend to get things wrong in one direction over time, you worry about them even more because you don't know about the whole populations that are simply not coming into surveys. So we ran a huge election survey during the, the, the past election. We had random samples impaneled across key battleground states, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida. We had separate random samples impaneled in key counties that had been Obama, Obama, Trump counties to see how people reacted across time. Um, and we did everything we could to ensure that this was the best of survey research that you could possibly do within reasonable financial constraints. It is extremely difficult to say, this is how many people are Republicans and this is how many people are Democrats. It's extremely difficult to say, I think we've gotten the Trump voter identified and, and hold, I'm, we're holding the Trump voter inside. And in part, we're underrepresenting rural constituencies. We're representing whole, whole swaths of the electorate. Lower educated constituents are being underrepresented in our polls. So my, my concern when you ask the question is, the, it may be worse than you think it is. 
you may actually be underrepresenting your concerns, not overrepresenting your concerns. That said, are the concerns real? Yes. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the complexity of public opinion and and the care that you have put in this election cycle and for a number. And for folks who want to uh, look at this incredible data set, um, you know, I recommend that you go, you look up Kathleen Hall Jameson at the Annenberg uh, School and you will find it. But my question is really uh, something different. When, when you have a Republican, someone who identifies as a Republican or leans Republican, they say, yeah, I don't think Joe Biden won. Could there be a number of factors playing into that? Yes, the misinformation from Donald Trump, but also worry about uh, Democrats going too far, perhaps being socialist. I mean, is there kind of a complex uh, set of, of concerns and preferences and attitudes that mix into that? Yeah, I think, I think one of the problems with polling is it creates an artificial set of questions and then you interpret the whole world through them. And I think sometimes when people say Donald Trump won, what they're really saying is Donald Trump should have won. And when people say, and I'm gonna say this today because we, we lived in Texas for three years. Um, you know, they, my, my brother still lives in Texas. You know, the, the, look at the Texas situation that global warming and climate change are real. Extreme weather is real. When people tell us they don't believe in climate change, I think what they're telling us is they don't like the solutions that are on the table and they don't want to live with them. I don't think they're saying that they wouldn't accept the science if you could get them back into an accuracy frame of the world. And so sometimes I think we confuse, we, we think, because literally we think, we think literally because we're academics. When, when somebody says Joe Biden was not elected, we're not listening carefully. They're saying he shouldn't have been. It's just wrong that he was. No, I don't accept that he is. But actually, if you could get them back into a discussion about what we know and how we know, you might actually hear something that's very different. We certainly know that on climate change. We know that on climate change, when you take away all of the things that people don't like in the conservative ideological space about the solutions to climate change, you take those off the table, you change the dialogue dramatically about whether it exists or not and whether it's human caused or not. Some of what is reflected in that they don't believe is, I don't want to give up my car. And I hear you saying, I'm going to give up my car. You know, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I, I don't want the kinds of regulation you think are going to be necessary, et cetera. And one of the things we did at one point was we tried to change the dialogue on climate by, by putting everything on the table, by saying, let's look at all the ways in which we could get an alternative way to provide energy. You put nuclear energy on the table and you change the dialogue dramatically because the assumption in many of those discussions is, oh, these are all liberal solutions that are gonna be economically harmful to me and cost me my job. And once you put nuclear on the table, you people say, well, wait a minute, that isn't a liberal solution. Why are you putting it on the table? We're putting all the solutions on the table. You now have a different discussion. And so when, when pollsters come up with their simple reading, sometimes I wonder if they're mishearing and if there's something wrong with our literal sense of the world um, as pollsters and as academics, when in fact, if we were a little more sophisticated, we might hear something else in those answers. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, solid point. There's a lot of research showing the, the influence of the question wording yeah. and, and the structure, but also the, the items that are listed. Um, and um, if you're interested in this, I've got several courses to recommend <laughs> to you at the University of Minnesota and the University of Pennsylvania. Let me ask you about um, the research you've done for many years on facts. 
you've been, and this is, this is not driven by 2020, you've been on this case for a long time. And I wanna ask you about what we are seeing in 2020, because I think for a lot of people, um, QAnon and, and some of the conspiracies that are out there uh, were kind of a, a, a new discovery. Um, and, you know, we've got these, as you've been saying, this echo chamber, you've got uh, Newsmax, you've got Fox, you've got Infowars, you've got just a litany of, of kind of uh, broadcast and social media organizations. Is it the case that, that uh, we're all of a sudden surrounded by conspiracy um, theories and, and advocates and believers, or has it always been there and we're just recognizing it now? It's a really good question, but before I address it, let me say when, when people say Fox, I always worry because Chris Wallace on Fox is one of the toughest interviewers on television. And he's tough on Democrats and he's tough on Republicans. Um, Fox did call the election and it did call Arizona. So that part of Fox is also Fox. I wanna distinguish in Fox, the opinion talk hosts who have very large audiences and those individuals who have traditional journalistic norms because they are there and they perform a very important function because to the extent that an audience is attracted in by the talk hosts and is exposed as a result to the news anchored content, they are gonna be more exposed to what I would call a factually certifiable world. And they were in those instances on Fox which led Donald Trump to suggest that people shouldn't watch Fox, but nonetheless, it means that, that we be careful about the way in which we talk about Fox. Now, let me, let me go back to, before, before we make this a political discussion, let me ask you whether when you think about this, do you think of COVID as a political topic? Well, it's certainly become one. I think, um, the, and I've read your research, so I know um, your views about this. And I think you've written you know, really very helpfully about um, attitudes towards the coronavirus and vaccines and mask wearing and social distancing. And, and the reason it's relevant to your question is it didn't have to be. So one question, so your big question, I mean, we, we want a world in which we have a common understanding to the extent that humans can of what is there so we know what we can do about it. So to the extent that some things polarize when they didn't have to. We should ask, how can we avoid having things polarize in the future that don't have to, that are consequential? I mean, right now, in terms of what's consequential in my life, there are no elections in my life right now. There is COVID in my life right now, and there's COVID in the lives of everybody that we're involved with across the globe. So to the extent that conspiracy theorists come into the COVID environment and can play on a political environment that has politicized the topic of COVID, they are able to get some traction they weren't able to get otherwise. There were conspiracy theories sitting back there about vaccination long before COVID. They've gotten more traction in COVID because we've managed to let COVID become politicized. And so we, we tracked through the, the conspiracy theories about the measles vaccine, for example, we did it about the prospective Zika vaccine. And as a result, we picked up the same questions in COVID time in order to ask how people were perceiving the prospective COVID vaccination. All of the conspiracy stuff allied with the polarization of COVID to increase the likelihood that people would accept the misperceptions, the distortions about vaccination that had already been sitting over there, and this has answered your question, that hadn't gotten very wide circulation. 
they got wider circulation because we let a broader topic polarize. And as a person who is ultimately responsible for factcheck.org and its subproject SciCheck, we are trying to find a way on consequential topics and health for me is an extraordinarily consequential topic that should not polarize to see if we can find a different model of how we address facticity. So right now, if you look at all the fact-checking sites, and mine is one of them, factcheck.org, please subscribe, no cost, great site. What you'll see is we tend to put them in sequence as we check them. And we're basically chasing distortions. So here's a distortion, we go grab it, we fact-check. Here's another distortion, we go grab it. We have a new idea. Our, our peers do it too. And you wanna find out where your, where your correction is. You gotta go through all these things to find it. We think they're underlying patterns of knowledge that if people accept, make it less likely they'll ever be susceptible to the factual inaccuracies and the deceptions. That's inst instead of chasing the deceptions, we think we need to find the underlying patterns and lay down the basic knowledge everywhere that we can. So basic knowledge. Now, this, this, this should not be in any way controversial. The virus is not the disease. SARS-CoV is what we call the virus. COVID-19 is what we call the disease. So when Dr. Fauci says, we don't know whether the vaccines prevent against the virus and the deceivers say, see, he said they don't work against COVID-19. If you knew, no, the virus isn't the, the, the disease, you would be less vulnerable to that deception. Now we're back into presumptive knowledge. And the academic community put up this idea called you know, the, the deficit theory of knowledge. And no, it doesn't work to just fill in deficits. Oh yes, it does. You have to figure out what's consequential that people want to know and need to know and get it in place so that it can preempt the deception. And that will keep us in factual territory. And I've got a bunch of these. So we shouldn't say anything that is vaccinated related, treated related is ever categorically safe. When they hear, when public hears safe, they hear categorically safe. We should say safer than getting the disease when we're talking about vaccination, because that's actually what science means. Now I'm off in science world right now and saying the way we talk about the world increases the likelihood people understand the factual underpinnings of the world, which makes them less likely to the deception. To deception. So if you heard someone say it's safe and then you see a reaction, you say, oh, it can't be safe. See, there's a reaction. When instead safer than the disease, oh, there's a reaction, but safer than the disease. Here's all the, all the people who die of the disease here are all the complications of the disease. The same thing we talk about immunity. If I could change one thing right now for the people who are, who are talking about health, I'd stop saying herd immunity, start saying community immunity. If people understand that when they say we need to hit 70 or so percent immunity in order to protect against spread of COVID, and we don't know exactly what that number is, 70 plus percent, and science knows iteratively, so it's what we know now. What I want people to say is that's in my community. So if Minnesota has 70%, but my community doesn't, as Minnesota learned with the outbreak of measles inside the Somali community, it's the community that has to have the level of immunity. So to some extent, Larry, when we as communicators talk to the health communicators, we need to build the factual presuppositions into the language that help people see the world accurately so they're less likely to be susceptible to deceptions. And there's one more that science is always saying we know this now, Science never makes final pronouncements of things. So when Dr. Fauci said, 
Yes, masks are fine to prevent people with having infection from spreading the infection. If you've got an infection, wear the mask, but healthy people shouldn't be walking around with masks, which he said on March 8th. And then April 3rd, the CDC says, wears mask. Dr. Fauci in that sentence is saying, there's actually a now in that sentence, but we have to hear it now more clearly every time we hear a science pronounced, but what we know now, the evidence accumulated about pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission. And as a result, we got a mask mandate. What does that preempt for deception? It preempts the idea that Dr. Fauci lied. Dr. Fauci is not to be trusted. So instead of chasing that distortion of Dr. Fauci the way we traditionally would, I want to preempt it by saying scientific statements are always provisional. They're always about what we know now. Um, and folks who don't know Kathleen Hall Jameson's work, uh, she has spent years uh, publishing and talking to science communities and has received um, you know, quite um, significant recognition for that within the science community. And I think that's quite notable. Um, in this study you did, it was published in August of 2020 in Social Science and Medicine. Um, you mentioned that these conspiracy beliefs uh, that is leading to resistance to vaccination, uh, distrust of the mask wearing and social distancing, um, you say several things I don't think would surprise people. You say people who hold these views tend to be conservative. They tend to consume social media. You also say though that a good number of these folks are people of color and, and black and indigenous. The, the historical record for communities of color is one that should yield suspicion of organized medicine, should yield suspicion of government medical interventions. I mean, all you have to do is say Tuskegee in order to provide a painful reminder of the abuse perpetuated by our system. So the, there, there's a different kind of susceptibility in communities that have had that kind of experience. There also is a lack of anchoring because of the disparities in health. Uh, so the, the, the cultural determinants of health are, it's, a, it's a, an odd way to phrase it, um, but the scholarly communities conventionalize cultural determinants of health as a way of seeing the social cultural determinants of health. If you have less access to a family physician, if you have less access to ongoing regular health care with a regular health care provider, you don't have some of the information protection that you've got if you have more means. And as a result, you have a regular doctor who sees you or the doctor's practice. You see the same sets of people. You come to trust them. So in a community that has less access and has less personal physician contact, there are fewer channels of reassurance sitting inside a community when a deception starts to circulate and fewer places that you can readily turn to for those certifications. And then when you're in those communities and you see largely white males standing up standing for the scientific community, you don't see a community that you recognize speaking to you. Yeah. The scholars of color across the medical establishment, they're, they're wide, they're widespread across the community have made incredibly important contributions, should be the ones who are being featured in news far more often, often communicating what they know. And we should make it content specific. One of the deceptions that's circulating right now is if you, if you have vitamin D deficiency, you're extremely vulnerable to COVID and only people with vitamin, C, vitamin D deficiency are gonna get COVID, vitamin D deficiency are gonna get COVID. That, what that means is people are stocking up on lots of vitamin D, but 
the danger of this, first, you shouldn't be stocking up on lots of things and taking vitamins without talking to a doctor or talking to a health professional. But if people then don't engage in protective practices or they think my vitamin D levels are fine and as a result, I'm not going to get COVID, you're extraordinarily vulnerable. Who should be out there talking to communities that are accepting this deception? People from inside the communities. So we can learn a lot from what Minnesota did when it had the measles outbreak. Minnesota, and you can tell us about that. Minnesota sent its local community in to talk to the community, and you know what else happened. Uh-oh. It's a quiz for Professor Jameson. <laughs> well, and your community does. I mean, the, 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 yeah. the, 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 the Minnesota health community found a way to come into a community that had been made more vulnerable because misinformation was being spread within it, but it didn't put up the Anthony Fauci's of the world to speak to the community. People from within the community carried health, the health messaging and they had the credibility to do it. So I look to Minnesota as a, as a state that is evidence for us of how to solve a problem, particularly with communities of color, particularly communities where they've been, been insulated inside a disinformation network. And can you break through? Well, Minnesota did. Um, we've been talking about uh, some of the challenges in the traditional media, the commentary side of Fox, social media sites, um, the upstarts like Newsmax in creating- Is that what you call them, the upstarts? Yeah. Okay. The, and, and some of the, the echo chambers have been created. Mm -hmm. Does that create, um, in your view, um, a potential uh, unintended consequence that the credibility of fact-oriented news organizations get pulled down as well. You know, the Democrats say, you know, Fox is the Republican um, um, news organ. Um, and then you've got Republicans, you know, calling fake media uh, for, and fake news to all the other media that, that they find just distasteful. Yeah, well, the, the frame that says that you can't trust the mainstream um, is problematic if the mainstream is where the science information is going to be found. Uh, but the health professionals need to go into venues and that, that, are, that have had problematic information and take it on in those venues. So to the extent that the health professionals say, well, I'm never gonna go there, how's the audience ever going to get the accurate information? And there was an instance of that that happened in, as the pandemic was just starting to take hold. Um, Anthony Fauci went into the Hannity show. Um, so now you're reaching Hannity's audience and he had one point that he was going to make. The coronavirus is more lethal than the flu. And he was going to make that no matter what. You, you can watch the sequence. So Sean Hannity wants Fauci to praise Donald Trump because that's what Hannity wants you to, wants you to like Donald Trump. Fauci says positive things about the Trump administration and what it is doing within the bounds that he has expertise. And then he makes the point, it's more lethal than the flu. It's more lethal than a cold. Well, what is he doing? By Sean Hannity legitimizing Dr. Fauci because he wanted Dr. Fauci to certify the credibility of the Trump administration, Dr. Fauci was able to put a key piece of science information into an audience that had been told something else in that venue earlier. One of the challenges is, how do you get the accurate information back into the venue that will reach the audience that received the misinformation? And that's the problem with enclaving and with like-minded networks and echo chambers, getting into them so that you have a chance 
to have the alternative point of view. I mean, we know from the psychology research, familiarity increases perceptions of accuracy. Well, if you never hear anything else, you never hear the alternative side. And that means you put public service announcements in those venues. You put advertising into those venues. And now I'm talking purely about science and COVID because we don't want anyone to die or infect anyone else if we could possibly prevent that from happening. And we don't ever want to see a health issue polarized again. Let's go back to Walter Cronkite in the 1960s and 70s. Are you old enough to remember Walter Cronkite? I do. Okay. And, um, you know, would that, was that a period where you would say, only if we could get back to Walter Cronkite, this would give us fact-based information. There'd be a kind of a common square of information that we were all, you know, feeding from. We, our values and our attitudes would drive, you know, which party we would support. Is that the model? Does that make any sense? Or is it just, it's been passed by? It's been passed by. Um, but you know, the, those who hearken back to the Cronkite era, um, it, when, when you ask who has the credibility to certify as fact, Cronkite stands up against the Vietnam War on factual grounds and had the credibility as a newscaster to do that. And you, uh, you're an expert on Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, basically caused Lyndon Johnson you know, a great deal of anxiety. Uh, because if you've lost Walter Cronkite, you've lost America. We don't have that world anymore. There's no longer a, a voice that has the trust of the American people writ large. Um, we've, we've proliferated multiple channels of communication and there are many good things that have come with that. We've increased the capacities of people to find and seek out and put out their own information. There are many good things about that. Uh, but we have to find a way to have voices that can transcend all of that about matters that we have in common. And that's why I hope that the courts are able to do that. I hope that the science community is able to do that so that in those areas in which something is really consequential for us, and right now, accurate information about COVID and vaccination is really consequential for us, having voices that are credible inside communities, not just a Walter Cronkite, but voices that communities can identify with as part of their community whom they can trust. Playing a Walter Cronkite-like role is what is important. And increasing the likelihood that wherever you turn, you're going to be able to hear voices that you trust with accurate information. And that means there's an obligation for everyone. I mean, they, they, this always sounds as if we're talking about elites and we talk about the Walter Cronkites, we talk about the Sean Hannity's. When you're getting information in your social media feed that is problematic and you share it or like it, you have just become Walter Cronkite for your friends. You basically said, I'm throwing my credibility behind this. I wish everybody given any problematic content, particularly concerning something consequential like COVID would check the CDC, the NIH bookmarked web pages. They should just bookmark them. Check the fact checkers you trust, check across them to see if they've all checked it before you send it to someone else and put your personal credibility behind it because every one of us is a Walter Cronkite to some other people. And we, we engage in that activity when we share and like. And the social norm that we're creating by doing that suggests approval of the content when often we haven't vetted it at all. We just think it's funny. We think it's evocative. It comports with our ideological predispositions. And so we don't interrogate it. We share it, our friends share it with their credibility and now We've got the conspiracy theorists over there. We've got the misinformation peddlers over here. And now we've actually kind of become part of that if we've shared it ourselves. That was a little bit of uh, take-home advice from Professor Jameson. 
if you don't want to be part of the echo chamber, take a look at yourself and your own social media practices. Well, and, and there, it, importantly, when things comport with your ideological biases, and one of my favorite pieces is one that circulated in 2016. It was a statement that was attributed to Donald Trump that he had not made that was being uncritically shared in liberal circles because of course Donald Trump must have made that statement because the assumption was if any statement that was, that was that outrageous, Donald Trump must have made. So it, it, our biases increase the likelihood that we're uncritical about anything that we are already predisposed to believe. We need to be really wary about anything that we're sharing about the other side that's problematic politically because we can be feeding disinformation too. Back in 2016, um, there was outrage, particularly among Democrats about uh, Twitter and Facebook and other social media organizations giving a platform to Russian bots and misinformation spread by uh, Republicans and Republican uh, operatives. Then we saw in 2020, Twitter stepping in and starting to label Donald Trump's uh, tweets as misleading, um, and then they ended up barring him. Is this the right direction? Is, is it, do we wanna be trusting these large private corporations with um, policing our speech, or is there another approach? I, I worry about particularly very large structures that have corporate interests making decisions about what constitutes you know, acceptable and unacceptable speech. And my, my worries go back to the radio era uh, where you know, radio station owners didn't want the side they didn't like to put advertising on air. And as a result, we created federal regulations that said if you accept advertising for one side, you have to accept advertising for other side, assuming that they can pay. And you have to have, provide comparable kinds of access, assuming that it's technically qualified speech, that is your, your candidate for office, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the, the, the notion that someone's going to stop a leader from communicating, particularly in an electoral context, is, is worrisome to me. However, the deplatforming of Donald Trump occurred after the election, not during the election, and occurred after the courts had certified across the board that, that these claims were not, did not have merit, and after you'd had the congressional action, the Senate action certifying the election. So now you do not have an issue here about whether you're going to vote based on that information or not. Up to that point, what the platforms were doing was putting up tags and essentially counter information. I like the idea of putting up tags and counter information, assuming that they're going to do it without discriminating and do it across all candidates who are comparably qualified, et cetera. And assuming that you then as, a, as an individual have the option to just completely ignore it. So it, it finds for me a kind of middle ground when you are making decisions about for whom to vote. Um, I, I have no problem with the deplatforming after January 6th. I mean, if, if that kind of action is getting traction as a result of exposure to content through those sources, I think for the well-being of the nation, it was a good idea to deplatform. The question now is should you re-platform Donald Trump in my judgment, the, the deplatform is a no-brainer at that circumstance. Under those circumstances, the question now is: Should he be replatformed? And do you think there ought to be kind of a fire in a theater uh, mm -hmm. standard that if you're inciting violence or appear to be creating circumstances in which violence may break out, that that would be legitimate for Twitter to step in and say, "Okay, this is too far. We may end up in court." 
uh, in fact, if we're seen to be, you know, uh, liable. Um, is there a role there that you would well, feel more comfortable with? Let's let's step back into your earlier question about the conspiracy theorists. So the the people who organized the insurrection that occurred on January 6th organized it online. They did not spend a whole lot of time on the phone talking to each other, and they didn't send snail mail around, uh, and they didn't shout from the rooftops. They organized online. So at the point at which people are talking to each other about how we're going to get guns across the Potomac, um, you know, the... Uh, you know, now we're dealing with, you know, should that sort of content, this is, this is, now political leaders are for me a separate category. Um, so to, to the extent that you're going, you're engaging in those sorts of activities, again, I don't think it's problematic at all when people engage in, and they're private corporations, which by the way, have a legal right to do whatever they want. From my standpoint, the first amendment isn't even that issue with a private corporation, but nonetheless, there's an issue about speech and access to speech that I, I find separate from a First Amendment grounds for making the argument. But should those kinds of content, that kind of, kind of be, yes. Should blatant misinformation about vaccination and COVID be blocked and barred? Yes, because the immediate possibility of harm is so great. And I mean, we, with the, we, we did a little big study about uh, what was on online and what was on YouTube about tobacco. Um, thousands of videos incentivizing kids to smoke. You can't do that on the airways. Um, it was happening on social media. So, you know, modeling smoking on media, increasing the likelihood that kids are going to smoke. Uh, we tried to create an intervention where you, we had took all these little pictures of under 18 kids, obviously young kids, showing smoking as modeling. We created a counter video, which put them all together on a screen. We wiped off half the screen and put up a reminder that one half of those who continue to smoke are going to die of smoking related illness. We showed experimentally it works. We couldn't get the platform to take it and put it up against those other videos to provide the counter speech. So I've pretty much always been of the, the view, counter speech is what you want under most circumstances unless you're inciting imminent violence or imminent harm. We've been talking quite a bit about disinformation from Donald Trump. And um, obviously this is not a partisan issue, the use of misinformation mm -hmm. and, um, and other sorts of techniques. I wanna talk a little bit about um, deficit spending, because this is an issue that uh, there's a lot of concern about. You've probably seen that we've had uh, Larry Summers, who was Barack Obama's Secretary of Treasury, write two pieces in the Washington Post saying that the risk of inflation because of the money that's going to be uh, spent um, through deficit spending uh, is likely to create um, uh, you know, a rush for limited goods and services, which could spark inflation. Now, you know, just looking at the deficit spending, Barack Obama in his last year, there was a bump up in his spending um, and it hit 3.5 trillion. Yeah. In Donald Trump's last year, it was 6.5 mm -hmm. trillion. We're looking at probably 5 trillion of extra spending by Joe Biden, just looking at what he's proposing. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got different voices in the Democratic Party. You've got the Biden administration, but then you've got Democrats in Congress who are saying it's not fair to be talking about inflation and deficit spending when we're in charge because the Republicans do it when they're cutting taxes. How do you adjudicate that kind of um, speech? Well, first, let me take the last part of your question. As a principle, I do not want to argue because they did something wrong, I get to do something wrong too. If it was wrong when they did it, it's wrong when I do it. So uh, for practical purposes, does that seem unfair that they get to do it, I don't get to do it? 
I don't care. My, if my principle is a principle, then I'm going to hold it no matter what. But let's step back. The, we, we, I've always worried about deficit and death. I've always thought that was part of my Minnesota upbringing, actually. Um, the, but the, we're now in a, an area in which we are having a legitimate policy debate. And the question is, is what did we learn from 2008? The Democrats who are favoring the Biden position are arguing that if they'd spent more in 2008, there would have been a faster recovery. The people who are worried about inflation are saying, well, we never tested whether we we're gonna produce inflation by spending more because you didn't spend more. Janet Yellen, who's got really good credentials in my view, my, my, I'm not an economist. My default is go to people I trust and then look at their arguments on both sides. Janet Yellen is arguing, acknowledging the Larry Summers position that yes, there is a concern, but we have the tools to deal with it if it occurs. Now the question becomes, are we having a debate about it that is acknowledging the other side and is bringing the best available evidence about what we can learn from the history of 2008, from past kinds of experiences, and what economists do and do not know about how we start inflationary cycles and how we control them. We're in uncharted territory right now, but I don't view this as an instance in which some people are denying fact on one side or fact on the other, but rather that this is actually what a policy debate is supposed to look like. And when Janet Yellen says, I understand the concern, the concern is legitimate. Now we're having a real discussion because you're hearing the other side and you're not saying you're wrong, I'm right. And she says, we have the tools. Now the next question is, what are the tools? What do we know about the tools? The next question isn't, what did we learn from 2008? Because that's not the argument we're engaging. The question is, what do we know about the tools? Because we've granted there's a possibility of inflation. She's granted it in the discussion. Now, if we had a rich deliberative culture right now, what you'd be seeing in news are exchanges in which economists adjudicated that, at least for the elites who can pay attention to it, because this is a case in which the elite community is able to work through some kinds of things differently. And then we, as people who are not the elites in this community, we're not economists, would be better informed as we process it. We're not having that debate right now. And that's in part because there's so much on the, on the table right now, there's no space. I mean, if, if we didn't have COVID right now, the climate crisis that we were in would be, would be a, a focus for an enormous amount of concern. If we didn't have a climate crisis, the crisis of racial justice that we were in would be a, a focus of enormous concern. Biden is right about this. We are facing four crises simultaneously and it's crowding out our capacity to take the next step, at least as a community interested in hearing the deliberation on the issue you're raising. But I don't see it as a denial of fact and I don't see it as problematic because I don't hear people saying, I'm not gonna listen to you, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I'm hearing people trying to engage and trying to ask where we can come down as a result of engagement. Well, I certainly see that um, with regards to Janet Yellen who was previously the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve Board and widely respected in fact. Yeah. She on came both, by both parties. By both parties, when she came up for her confirmation hearing to the Biden administration, it was lickety split and it was an overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. But there are Democratic leaders in Congress who are making the argument, not fair, Republicans got away with it. There are differences among economists. Um, you mentioned yeah. Janet Yellen and I would say more orthodox um, uh, economists. Their group of economists who are abiding by what's known as modern monetary yes. theory, who are actually trying to justify large yep. uh, deficits uh, as a way to spend more money. 
Um, yeah. So I, to me, this looks like a situation where at least some of the Democrats, particularly in Congress, there is you know, what I would say is a flight from reality. I mean, you yeah. just running up these mass, and just by the way, you know, going back to, to, to Obama, the figure was 3.5 trillion. That was a high point for him or a higher point um, in the last five years. But we're now into these areas. We're, we're looking at the potential for, you know, if Biden were to get everything, seven, eight trillion dollar uh, deficit it's spending, excuse me, expenditures. It's it's really extraordinary. Well, it, it's a time to, to make sure that in the academic community and you're you're in a you know, you're in a rich policy community uh, that we, we bring the historians in. Uh, we bring the economists in. Um, we bring the people who have done the analysis of what the implications of the 2008 decisions were. Uh, we also, by the way, can put on the table whether tax cuts pay for themselves, uh, because there's pretty good evidence there as well uh, that that doesn't tend to get into debates. Uh, so, yeah, well, inconvenient evidence. People on both sides are, are really good at denying inconvenient evidence, um, particularly evidence that undercuts their their primal presuppositions. But I would like to hear from the historians who studied how we engaged in spending and with what effect as we made the transition from Hoover to FDR. And what we learned as a result, if anything that is applicable here and now, what have we learned as the countries tried various things across time and we've tried wage price controls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what have we learned about how you bring down inflation? We had, we had historic levels of inflation during the Carter era um, that the country managed to bring back under control. Is that what Janet Yellen is talking about? Are those kinds of mechanisms still available? What are the costs of doing that? But Larry, one of the things that concerns me is the, there's a, another part of this argument, which is we've got people in crisis right now. So, and the reason for going back to the Great Depression is an argument. I did not live through the Great Depression, my parents did. Um, but the, there are people in genuine crisis right now. Um, we had on our, our battery of our survey instrument that we are, we just concluded the, the running of this, this survey about two weeks ago. Uh, we, we put in a new category. We've never had it in all the time that I've done survey research. We called it a desperation index. And it, because it, it asked whether you had enough food to feed your family that week, whether or not you were risking being homeless or were already homeless, you know, you know whether or not your electricity had been cut off, you know, th those kind of desperation measures. The, the question for me is how do we get help to people in need? How do we ensure that the money goes to the people in need? We've got people unemployed, the unemployment rate's going back up again. We've got, we have you know, underlying structural patterns that are beginning to appear that could have generation long effects. So how do we spend what money we spend in a way that ensures that those people get help and that we put structures under them that drive them into a recovery? Um, and so, you know, I reprioritize my world in terms of short-term, long-term, when you've got what we characterized as, as desperation. And to the extent that the people who talk about this have enough food, have roofs over their head, have electricity, have internet connectivity to talk to their friends on Zoom, they may not appreciate the extent to which there are people there at hurt. And the people who administer the money need to make sure that that's where it's going and it's not going someplace else. And I'm really sympathetic to spend what we need to do that and spend what we need to make sure that we rebuild the infrastructure of this country, which we should have done 40 years ago and should have been done doing on an ongoing basis to ensure that we've got the economic structures in place that will let the economy thrive once we rebuild. Got two more questions here for you. We're running low on time. Um, 
our one of the best reporters in the Twin Cities, Pat Kessler, mm-hmm. who was a long time. I know you know him. I, I still read the Minnesota papers. Yeah. And so P- Pat was at uh, CBS News, WCCO. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's got um, has been running a, a fact check inspired by you. Uh, it's called um, um, God Reality Check. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got uh, a question for you. Or actually two questions. What's your view about fact checking as a regular news story as part of, you know, 10 o'clock news, for instance? Is that appropriate? Does that make sense to you? Uh, the, the, here, let, let me start by talking about the concern. Um, you, you don't want to invite cynicism by thinking that every night we have so much deception that we need to regularize a fact checking function. Um, but I would like to have the, and this comes to the, the notion I was trying to articulate earlier, I'd like to have a surveillance function that is ongoing in, in particularly local news. I mean, national news too, but particularly local news. So that as you start to see something that's problematic, an alarm bell goes off. And then you activate this function, but you activate it trying to put in place an accurate understanding throughout your news about that topic. And preferably the news has been so good on that topic that adding that little extra piece is not gonna be problematic for you. And so it's not a find the problem that's out there, the fact that needs, and now let's quickly correct it. I think the danger is that's gonna invite cynicism if you regularize it. It's rather try to figure out what the community needs to know and make sure that knowledge is there. And then if something's deceptive, wrap it in so that it gets contextualized, not so that it gets featured and debunked, which can run the risk that you, that you, that you legitimize it. That said, fact-checking that's done well in political campaigns should be ongoing because we have an ongoing stream of content. And there I like to see the, fu- the function regularized so that when someone sees something that's problematic, they can say, well, if my fact checker didn't check it, I think it must be okay. And I think there's a special obligation in broadcast. If broadcast has taken an ad that is deceptive, which it has to do if it's a candidate ad, bona fide candidate for federal office, it can't censor those ads. I think the fact checking function is an obligation of the station. I think you have to immediately flag that and you have to immediately go after that. So I'd have one norm for campaigns and I'd have a a separate norm for what I would call governance time. And the governance time right now for me would include making sure that we're tracking back and getting context around everything that's a COVID disinformation piece. And I love your work, by the way. Thank you for the question. Um, here's a, a question that has haunted me. Who's to blame for the situation that we're in that we've been talking about this hour? You know, on the one hand, um, there were a number of fairly smart people before and after the 2020 election who said the, this election, its outcome, the fact that Donald Trump came so close, this was a sign of essentially voters are idiots. They just unable to process and understand the kinds of facts that you're talking about. And of course, this idea of voters as idiots goes back a long way. Plato didn't use those words. Uh, he was more erudite, but there was a gist of that. He's also writing in Greek. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. On the other side, there's the view that a lot of what you're talking about and actually the actors you're talking about are the elites in Congress, in the media, um, and they're the ones who are primarily to blame for this and have been kind of triggering voters um, to uh, you know, consider and embrace conspiracy theories, misinformation. 
How do you adjudicate it? Is it the voters or the elites? Uh, well, I, anytime somebody doesn't either or, my, my response always is I, I, I'm not going to accept binaries and I don't like those kinds of frames, but it, it's a good way to ask a question. But let, let me step back though. The, the, the reason that one votes for Donald Trump is not some single thing. And it is possible for someone who is conservative in ideology to look at the alternative because you're, you're balloting with what you've got in front of you on the ballot. You don't get to say, I'm not going to vote for any of them, put X in and have any impact whatsoever. Uh, so if you are a conservative, there can be a strong case that one makes that a liberal alternative and a conservative alternative, if the conservative alternative carries with it all the things that are, you might socially disapprove about Donald Trump, still the conservative alternative is better. So I don't wanna start by saying that more than 70 million voters are fools. I want to start by saying, why would someone support a conservative ideology as they see bodied in Donald Trump, whether you call it conservative or not is a matter of, of debate on some issues, clearly yes, conservative. I want to start out by saying, how can we find things that those who voted for Joe Biden and those who voted for Donald Trump will believe in common <clears throat> about the state of the nation and about what we ought to do to identify the problem? If we can't agree on what the problem is, we're not going to come together to ask about solutions. And then where can we find those kinds of common ground between the two so that we can govern? Because if we don't get there, then whichever side has the votes ultimately is going to cast the votes. We may as well say governance doesn't matter. I mean, once you, once you elect, the rest of it is just a given. We'll see in four years. So the who's to blame for, then, then I change the four because voting for Donald Trump isn't something I'm going to blame someone for, just as I'm not going to blame someone for voting for Joe Biden. But rather, I want to say, what was it that mattered to you when you cast the vote? And if what mattered to you when the cast the vote was something that I don't think comports with reality, that is you're casting a vote because you think that Democrats are, pe are pedophiles um, who are engaging in a satanic ritual in which they're drinking blood, et cetera. I'm worrying about you a lot, no matter where you vote. I mean, if you vote for a third party candidate, I'm, I'm concerned about you. Um, you, know, you decide not to vote, I'm worried about you. So I, I wanna parse back the assumption that everybody who votes out of conspiracy world is necessarily going to vote for Trump or necessarily going to vote at all. And also out the possibility that there are also things that are problematic out there that I want to worry about that didn't even come into the election. Because now we're in governance time. So in governance time, we got to figure out what are the problems and how do we get solutions in a fiscally constrained environment. We clearly don't have the options that we once had to spend. Whatever you think about deficit, debt, and inflation right now, we don't have the kind of capacities we once had to run up deficit and debt. And I don't think you've got a liberal or conservative who's going to doubt that. So there's a cap on what we can do now that constrains what we can do in a way that it didn't, for example, in the, in the past that we can remember. If we frame it that way, then what we, we place the blame on those who won't address the problems. They engage in distractions about other things instead of saying, We've got to get vaccinations in arms. We've got to get people fed. We've got to get our children educated. We're risking a generation, a lost generation of children right now who have not been able to get the quality education they need in formative years, despite the best efforts of amazing teachers who are working under very difficult circumstances. So I want to get us focused on those kinds of things in a way that lets people say, I'm not a Trump or Biden voter. I'm a person thinking about a problem and how we can best address it, because that's how we're going to have to govern. Kathleen, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Um, and, you know, I think 
for me, uh, having been a scholar and someone hoping to be a public intellectual, you've always been a role model. So thank you for that too. Thank you. That's a lovely compliment. It's so good to be with you. Okay. We look forward to seeing you in person and I hope the not too distant future back here in Minnesota. I do as well. Okay. Take care and thanks again.